This morning, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2. And as I was reading this passage over the past week, I came away with this thought. It is a miracle that church ever works. It is. It is a miracle that the church actually is successful at anything. <laughs> there is some crazy stuff going on in 2 Peter chapter 2. And it reminds me that it is a miracle that God would call together a group of sinful but redeemed people to serve as his set-apart testament to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God on the earth and that it actually occasionally works. It's a miracle that that happens, that all of us from our various backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, our own preferences can come together under the lordship of Christ and somehow through the power of the gospel, it ever works because there are so many ways that we as sinful human beings can mess it up. I think about my own experience within the church in my young-ish, 36 years upon the planet. I've seen church splits, nasty church splits from people that did life together for decades because they disagreed over preference in music. Nasty. I've seen people who say they love the Lord and yet act in the most appalling and racist ways toward one another. I've seen church members send really insulting and bitter letters to their pastors. I've seen leaders in the church fall to all kinds of immorality. I've seen a lot of people burned by the church. And yet, with as bad as these things are, I've seen exponentially more good from the church than bad. After all, I'm giving my life to her. So why would I do that, having seen all that I've seen that's bad? Why is the good so much better? Why, why am I giving my life to this church, even after seeing and experiencing a whole lot of difficulty in the church? I've seen people from all backgrounds and preferences mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as a testimony to their common love for the Lord. I've seen people who look different and have different backgrounds each embrace each other because of their common faith. I've seen church members radically care for their pastors and leaders in moments of great difficulty. I myself have been the beneficiary of godly men and women pouring their lives sacrificially into me throughout the course of my life. I've seen a lot of people a lot of people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people helped by the ministry of the church and led to faith in Christ. No, it is true. The church is not perfect. You want to know why? Because you and I aren't perfect. It's imperfect because it's made up of imperfect people. The church is imperfect, yes, but she is beautiful. She's beautiful, and she is worth being a part of, and she is worth protecting this bride of Christ. The reality of imperfection 
should not lead us to remove ourselves from the body of Christ, nor strive to help make her the best bride of Christ that she can be. To, to constantly seek to protect her, to purify her as a way to honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the great groomsman. As with our lives, individually, the reality that we are not perfect should not lead us to quit striving to be more like Christ, right? And the same thing is true for the body of Christ. As a, as a whole, just because we are imperfect, because we've got a lot of imperfect people in here, doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive as much as we can to be the best version of the church that we can be for the glory of God. We recognize our shortcomings, but we are also committed to taking whatever steps necessary to make sure that God is honored by us as a church. This morning, in our passage, Peter is warning the church about false teachers. False teachers. Because there are people who are among them in the church who are trying to pervert the church and the teaching of the church for their own glory, for their own purposes. And if they continue to succeed, the consequences can be catastrophic, damaging to the, the testimony of truth and damaging to the people of God who are called to be a, a set-apart example of the power of the gospel in their lives. And here's Peter's challenge to the church. Do you love the church enough to act when false teaching, teachers threaten her? Do you love the church enough to take a stand when false teachers arise and begin to threaten the unity of the body of Christ? Because God does. God loves his church enough to act to protect her. And he is asking you to do the same. Here's our main point this morning. We must love the church as God does and protect her when false teachers come. We must love the church enough as God loves the church to protect her when false teachers come. Let's turn to our passage this morning and see how Peter warns the people of God about this particular issue, this issue of false teaching. And we're going to approach the text a little bit differently today because chapter 2 is a very long chapter. There's 22 verses in chapter 2. But I think what we read in chapter and verses 1 to 3 sets an outline for the whole of the chapter. And so we're going to focus in the beginning on the first three verses, and we're going to see how the first three verses of the chapter unfold an argument that is continued throughout the entirety of chapter 2. We're going to let the first three verses inform our understanding of the whole chapter. So let's begin in the first three verses of 2 Peter chapter 2. Here's what the Word of God says. But false prophets also... Arose uh, among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master 
who, brought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now let's break down together what Peter is writing to the early church here about false teachers. In an effort to make them aware and to call them to action because of their love for the church. There are four truths about false teachers that the church needs to be aware of in the course of this passage, which we can find in the first three verses of our text. Truths that evidence the danger that false teachers pose to the church and God's response to them as a, as a way of shaping our own response when we encounter those who are teaching falsely. So I want us to be aware of these truths, but I also want us to be aware of more. I want us to consider the tone of Peter. You know, the tone matters in the text too. I want us to, to consider the tone of Peter as he writes these words to the early church because what I see in Peter is a passion for the church. What I see in Peter is a love for the bride of Christ that drives him to these convictions that I think is meant under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to stir in us a passion and love for the people of God. I want us to be challenged not only by the truth of what Peter presents here, but the tone in which he presents it. Asking this question, do I love the church as much as Peter does? Am I willing to protect her as much as Peter is willing to protect her? So here's the first truth about false teachers. We see in chapter 2, verse 1, false teachers are among you. Not just outside the church, they are among you within the church. False prophets also um, arose among the people. And there are now false teachers even among you. False teachers actually exist and have existed among the people of God as long as the people of God have existed. There are false teachers claiming to be true prophets throughout the Old Testament, speaking for God when they had no authority to speak for God. I'm reminded immediately of a false prophet named Shemaiah, and we find him in Jeremiah 29, and this is in the, the moment when the people of God have been taken into Babylonian captivity. And God is saying to the prophet Jeremiah, you better get ready because you're going to spend a long time in Babylonian captivity. But Shemaiah says something different. He says to the people of God, hey, this whole Babylonian captivity, this whole judgment for your sin that God is unfolding upon you, it's a big misunderstanding. It's a mistake. Don't worry. God's going to come in. He's going to rectify this. He's going to set it right. And we're going to be packing our bags and heading back to good old promised land before you know it. Here's the problem with what Shemaiah said. God did not say it. And because God did not say it, 
Shemaiah had no business promising that to God's people. Because he's the one who decides what promises he's going to make to his people. This is how we know that Shemaiah was a false prophet and that he was memorialized as such in Scripture. Listen, false teachers, false prophets, if there are any of you among the, out there, I hope not, just get ready because God takes this seriously, so seriously in fact, that he will write you in Scripture and allow you to be known for your false teaching for thousands of years afterward. <laughs> Here's how we know he was a false teacher. He did not speak with divine authority because he was not saying what God had said. He was promising something that God did not promise. He was saying that there was going to be peace for God's people when in reality there was going to be judgment and he was dealt harshly with by God. He was condemned by God for attempting to speak for him and to lead his people astray. Listen to what Jeremiah is supposed to speak over the people of God about Shemaiah and Jeremiah 29, verses 30 to 32. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Send to all the exiles, those who are still in captivity, because that's where I sent them, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah, because Shemaiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him and has made you trust in a lie. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah and his descendants, and he shall not have any living among his people. And he shall not see the good that I will do to the people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. He's going to wipe this dude out. Because that's how seriously he takes false teaching among his people. And Peter is saying what was true of the false prophets then is true of them now. Those who teach falsely then, it's the same thing happening now. You have people claiming to speak for God who did, God did not send. And they have no authority. That's why I'm calling them false teachers and not false prophets. There's no authority there. They don't get to speak for God. They are promising you things that God did not promise you. And God is going to condemn them because they are inciting rebellion against the truth of God. And church, you cannot ignore this, ignore this reality. Not everyone who says, I come in the name of the Lord, actually comes in the name of the Lord, right? Not everyone who does Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 stuff, like Jesus said, who prophesies, who casts out demons, who does mighty works in the name of the Lord, actually knows the Lord. In fact, many of them are going to be cast aside, and Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. You weren't doing this for my glory. You are doing this for your own. So what's so dangerous about their teaching? That leads us to the second truth. They're among you. Secondly, their teaching is destructive. Look at verse 1 again. False teachers, false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Destructive heresies denying the master, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Their teaching is destructive. 
instead of being instructive in the ways of the Lord, instead of building up the people of God, this teaching is destroying them. It is taking them away from the very thing that God has called them to. Now notice, an important note here. This is not a disagreement about secondary theological truths. Okay? It's really important we get this here. Just because someone disagrees with you on something secondarily does not make them a false teacher. Okay? We can have a healthy disagreement about how the second coming of Christ is going to happen. Why? Because there's some unclearness there. There's a lack of clarity about exactly what's going to happen when. We know for sure that Christ is coming again, but there can be disagreement about how it's going to happen because it's unclear. So there's, there's an okay disagreement there. We can have disagreements about how we organize the church, whether or not we have elders or whether or not we uh, are, are only congregationally led. That can be a disagreement because there's freedom there within the text. We're not talking about those secondary things. We're talking about here things that are primary, things that are essential to the gospel message, things that, that, right, that run right at the heart of the gospel, dangerous, threatening the very foundation of Christianity. These teachers, according to our text, are questioning the very nature of the sovereign God, the very nature they are denying their master, Peter writes here, which in the language of the New Testament can be translated their sovereign Lord. They are denying the reality of the Lord who owns them, who bought them. And they are doing so in order to promote a life of sensuality a life that is contrary to godliness. Remember, in chapter 1, Peter says it's our responsibility to pursue a life of godliness. Well, these teachers are denying that. And they're saying, you can pursue this life, a life of sensuality, and you want to know what? God's okay with it. He's good with it. Look at verses, verses four, 4 to 16 and read them with me. For if God, and let me just tell you, there's a lot of confusing things in here we're going to walk through. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard." Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and those who despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, angels, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, 
born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Now, there's obviously a lot going on in that passage, okay? <laughs> and we're going to unpack it in just a minute. But notice initially how much discussion here is about these false teachers promoting a life of sensuality. They are promoting a life that is characterized in verse 10 by pursuing defiling passions and despising authority. So these teachers are indulging in the lust of defiling passions and they despise any authority that tells them that they have to live otherwise. In fact, they are manipulating the authority to justify their actions. These teachers are not even trying to hide their conduct, verse 13. They're not ashamed of it. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. You know, most of us are, would be, we'll get into this a little bit more, most of us would be ashamed or hide what they're doing. No, 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 they're doing it in, in clear view. And they're saying that God is honored by it. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. Here's what that means. These teachers, every time they look at a woman, they are seeing her in a sexual way as a possible partner for adultery. They are preoccupied with sin. They are greedy, verse 14. They are promoting their own teaching in order to line their own pockets, capitalizing on the sinful desires of man to fund their own sinful desires. These teachers are teaching and engaging in some very disturbing behavior. And we don't fully know what it is, but it's clearly sexual in nature, and they are rejecting the authority of God and the coming judgment of God in order to excuse it, in order for it to be okay for them to continue to pursue it. And Peter reminds the church, this is not the first time, it's not the first time that we have seen created beings reject God's authority in order to pursue a lifestyle that they would prefer in order to, to pursue a lifestyle that is contrary to God. And he reminds them of some of these moments where God has judged a rebellious creation because they were not honoring his authority. And specifically, they were not honoring his authority by acting out in sensual ways. Peter references a, a common interpretation of this time surrounding Genesis 6, 1 to 4, when he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. He's referencing a common interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 to 4, which talks about the sons of God coming down from heaven having relationships with women and having offspring. 
And as a result of that, that's some of the wickedness that God is judging when he brings about the flood. He further references Sodom and Gomorrah. Do we need to be reminded of the rampant sensuality and rebellious sexuality that was present in Sodom and Gomorrah? These cities were destroyed because of their rejection of God's authority and their embrace of sexual perversive or perverted activities. The first one was destroyed by water in the flood. The second destroyed by fire, Sodom and Gomorrah. And what all these examples reveal are a people who desire things that do not honor the Lord. And they reject the sovereignty of God to pursue created things instead of the creator. It's a complete misunderstanding of pleasure. It's a complete misunderstanding of the desires that God has given to us as we seek to be pleased in an ultimate way by things that were meant to point us to God, right? Every desire we have and every way in which that desire is fulfilled on this side of heaven is always meant to point us to God, first and foremost. If you have love in your heart, if you desire love, and you love someone here as a result of that desire. I love my wife. We just had our anniversary yesterday. I love my mom. It's Mother's Day today, right? And many of you in here, as mothers, you love your children. All of that love is meant to point us to the source of greater love, right? No matter how much I love Jordan, she's never going to satisfy me the way that God can satisfy me. No matter how much I love my kids, they cannot satisfy me the way that only God can satisfy me. Every good and perfect gift that we experience here is meant to point us to the one who gives us those good and perfect gifts. He's the one who has given us every good and perfect gift, James chapter 1, verse 17 says. And yet what these teachers are doing is rejecting that truth and they are seeing these things that are meant to lead us to God as ends in and of themselves. They didn't want God because they knew what God would say about what they really wanted. And so they rejected him in order to get what they desired in their sinfulness. They didn't want eternal satisfaction in their creator. They wanted temporary satisfaction in created things. They were idolaters. Idolaters, guided by their sinful desires. And here's what they're basically teaching. And just listen for a moment if this sounds familiar to you. You don't have to worry about whatever lifestyle you want to live. God's not going to judge you. He loves you. He's not going to judge you. He loves you. Go do whatever you want. God doesn't care. He's not coming back. You just need to live for today. Because you're not promised that you just go out there and you get as much pleasure, as much success, as much wealth as you can. Because who knows? Who knows what the future holds? And are you worried about those angels? The Genesis 6 angels? You worried about them? Don't worry about them. Angels are not better than us. We're better than them. God loves us more. It's not a good comparison. He may have judged them, but he will not judge us. Bold and willful. They do not tremble, verse 10, 
as they blaspheme the glorious ones, those angels. Peter says these false teachers are acting like animals when they talk about this kind of stuff, like Baal, prophet for hire, who would say whatever he wanted to to get paid. He's going to be embarrassed. They, they're going to be embarrassed like Balaam was when a donkey turns around and speaks more wisdom to him than he ever spoke. See that in verses 15 and 16. And the result of this false, this false teaching is destruction, both for the prophets, as we'll see in a minute, these false teachers, but also for the church, to the testimony of the church. Verse 2, the way of truth is being blasphemed by what they are saying. And the testimony of the Lord's Supper is being called into question. Verse 13, they are feasting with you as if they are a part of you. They're saying that we believe the same gospel and that we're satisfied by the same thing, the body and blood of Christ. But in reality, there's nothing in their life that looks like they are of Christ. They have no business sitting among you as if they are of you. And it destroys the very supper that Christ instituted himself. They teach you to indulge the flesh, even as they partake of the flesh of Christ, which purchased them. Blasphemous, accursed children. So dangerous. Their teaching is, dest is destructive. It's also deceptive. That's the third truth. They're among you, their teaching is destructive, and their teaching is deceptive. Look at verses 2 to 3 again. Many, listen to this, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their teaching is deceptive. It's designed to be attractive to our flesh in order to get us on board. It's like the candy at the grocery store for kids. You know what I'm talking about? Every time I go to the store with Jude, it's amazing that somebody took the time to put the candy right at his eyesight and that someone designed it to appeal to him. So that when we get into the line of checkout, without fail, here's what he says. Daddy, what's that? And you can tell. He's not just asking because he's curious about it. He's asking because he wants it. Right? So there's some marketing genius somewhere in Dallas, New York, L.A., someplace, that did some psychological studies about what packaging most appeals to a three-year-old. And there are some people creating high sugary content that when it hits my son's taste buds, he loves. And every time he sees something packaged like that, he associates the good taste, and even though it's bad for him, he wants it. And these people, these knuckleheads at the grocery store, put it right in their eyesight. So I have to be the bad guy and tell him, hey, son, you don't need that sugar, right? But there are some people who do buy it for their kids. And it's okay to do that every now and then, but every time, right? 
There are people who position this candy to take advantage of a situation. And the same thing is happening in the church with these false teachers. They're cultivating in their heart desires that are contrary to God. And they are wrapping it in packages that are appealing to our fleshly eyes, that are appealing to our fleshly taste buds, and saying, you want this. You need this. And God's not going to judge you for it. It's okay. It's crazy to me when you think about how contrary this teaching is to the gospel that anybody who claims a relationship with Christ would follow them into this false teaching. And yet many, the text says, will follow them. Why? Because it is what our flesh wants. It's what our sin nature wants. For being honest with ourselves, if we're not seeking to honor the Lord, if we're just seeking to please ourselves, everything they're promising is exactly what we want. And if somebody will just tell us it's okay, God's okay with it, we're going to go all in. Because we don't want Him in reality. All these false teachers are doing is promising you exactly what you want in the flesh. They're celebrating the things that God does not honor in order to get you to pay them and to allow them to indulge in the very things that do not honor the Lord. You want more money? Awesome. God wants you to have more money too. Whatever it takes, you'll get more money. You want sex? Who cares? Grab as much as you want. Whatever situation you want to find yourself in, go, do it. God's okay. You want power? You want to oppress other people in order to build yourself up? That's not contrary to God. Go do it. You want success? Whatever it takes to satisfy your heart, you go do it. And God wants you to have it too. Friends, listen to Peter's words. 2 Peter, verses 17 to 19. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly. Listen, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. These, these teachers, they tell you exactly what you want to hear in order to exploit you financially, and in some cases sexually. They are promising you a freedom that they cannot give because they don't know freedom. They're still in bondage. And they are using you to excuse their own bondage. They are only serving themselves. They are not serving the Lord, not his people. And could anything be further from the gospel? These teachers who are only serving themselves and saying they're in fact serving you, could anything be further from the example of Christ? Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Christ came to serve, not be served. And he gave his life as a sacrifice for many. These teachers look nothing like Jesus. They're indulgent. They're not sacrificing for you. They didn't give their life for you. They're not offering you true freedom from sin. 
They're pushing you back into it in order to promote themselves. That is not of the Lord. Deceptive, this teaching. But truth four, God will protect his people. They are among you. Their teaching is destructive, it's deceptive. But know this, God will protect his people. Verse three, in their greed, they exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. In the same way that God dealt with Shemaiah and other false teachers, he's going to deal with them in a whole lot worse ways moving forward. God will not let this stand. God has a history of bringing swift justice to those who would incite rebellion among his people and cause them to trust in a lie. It seems like one of the arguments that these false teachers are making is this. How could God rain judgment upon all of us and adequately protect the righteous from the unrighteous? It doesn't make sense that God would judge everybody because if he just pours out his wrath, he's not going to be able to save those who are righteous. So don't worry about judgment. God's not going to do that. He's not going to risk hurting the righteous while judging the unrighteous. So just don't worry about any judgment at all. And Peter's saying, that is the biggest load of baloney I've ever heard. Because Throughout the course of the Old Testament, we see God judging the wicked while also protecting the righteous. And he will continue to do that moving forward, right? He's able to protect good angels while casting out wicked angels. He's able to protect Noah and his family in the ark while also raining judgment upon the earth in the flood. He's able to protect Lot, who Peter calls righteous here, and mostly because of his tension. There's some other unrighteous things that Lot didn't do, uh, that Lot did. But in terms of him being distressed by the wickedness of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, he certainly was distressed by that. And God was able to protect him even as he rained judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Clearly, verse 9 says... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He can do both. So, verses 20 to 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first for it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb has said happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. These false teachers will earn the wage of destruction for their work of iniquity. Verses 12 to 13. They will be covered by utter darkness because of their enslavement to sin, verses 17 to 19. And here's what they reveal, that what we thought of them was not true. It seemed like they were part of us, but in reality they were not. 
It seemed like they had been rescued from their sin, but in reality, they were still enslaved. It seemed like they were pursuing the things of the Spirit, but in reality, they were pursuing the things of the flesh. And God reveals this to protect the church. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. And their judgment will be harsh and unrelenting. Worse, worse to have tasted, to have heard and seen the gospel in action and to have still rejected it while also leading the people of God astray. And God will judge them harshly. False teachers are a very real danger to the church. So, do you love the church enough to protect her from them? Or do you love the flesh so much that you would be willing to embrace their teaching in order to pursue things that do not honor the Lord? Do not forget where true satisfaction and pleasure are found. They are found only in God. And the only way to get there is through Christ. So, how can we respond this morning to this incredible challenge from Peter and 2 Peter 2? Four responses I want to offer very quickly to us. First, we must be on guard. This chapter is a call to action. Be aware. There are false teachers, not just outside, not just putting forth other religions. There are false teachers within the community of the Christian faith who claim to be of Christ and yet are not. They simply want to take advantage of us. There are those who capitalize on our fleshly desires in order to make a name for themselves. Well, Jared, what are some examples of this? Well, the one that immediately comes to mind are those who teach the prosperity gospel. And we've talked a lot about that here. Those who would say that God does not want you to suffer in any way, never experience hardship, and he wants you only as a function of being his child to experience health and wealth on this side of heaven. Friends, that is not what God promised you. It's not. It sounds good as an American, right? I want health. I want wealth, but what happens when you get diagnosed with cancer? And no matter how much faith you speak over that cancer, it doesn't go away. Does that mean God doesn't love you? Of course he loves you. He's going to sustain you. And he's given you the promise of healing, maybe not in this life, but in the one to come. What happens if you lose your job? Does God not love you? Of course he does. And he's provided you a community of faith to help you walk through those difficult times. There's provision for you. doesn't mean you're never going to experience hardship. But those prosperity gospel teachers will tell you what you want to hear so that if you sow a little bit of money into their ministry, you're going to get the health and wealth that you desired all along. Doesn't that sound exactly what Peter is talking against here? Another thing I thought about this week, those churches who are promoting LGBTQ agendas in their churches— who would say that God's okay with you pursuing whatever lifestyle you want. doesn't matter to him. Go do whatever, whoever makes you happy, go do that. 
God's not going to judge you for that. He made you that way. You ever heard that before? Dangerous, friends. Listen, that does not mean that we don't love our LGBTQ neighbors, right? If somebody walked in this door, maybe there was someone in here today who is struggling with or is identified in an LGBTQ way, I want you to hear me this morning. We're going to love those people, okay? And if anybody says anything degrading against them, you're going to have to go through me. We're going to love them. But part of loving them means telling them the truth about what God has said about sexuality, what God has said about marriage, because we want them to flourish and be in the full blessing of God. And that cannot happen when you're walking in rebellion. Something else I thought about, churches that don't do enough to remove and hold accountable predatory behavior. When I read chapter two here, what I see is predators coming into the church, looking to capitalize on people who are trusting and vulnerable. And friends, as a church, listen to this, it's Mother's Day. What better gift could we give mothers than them knowing that when their children are in our care, they are safe? If there's anybody who's using the ministry of this church to push for predatory behavior, we have a responsibility to get rid of them, to not let them near the most vulnerable in our churches. So we gotta be on guard. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful what you read. Be careful whose teaching and preaching you sit under. Use discernment and always, always, always submit to the authority of Scripture. Did God promise that? Did He really promise it? Or is it something I just want in the flesh? There will be antichrists among us until Christ returns. 1 John 2.18, be on guard. Secondly, we got to know the truth. For you to be on guard against lies, you have to know the truth. You got to know the prophetic word that Pastor Blair talked about last week. You got to know the apostolic testimony, the true prophet's testimony, to know the false teacher's lie. We must be mature in our understanding of our faith so that we are not these unsteady souls that can be led astray easily. Friends, be discipled. Love the word. Grow in the word of truth. You have a a sure testimony of the work of God here. Know him so that when someone says something that's not of him, you can know it. Thirdly, we must protect our brothers and sisters as a family. When we see a brother or sister being enticed by false teachers or themselves begin to teach, teach falsely, We must do the difficult work of rebuke and call to repentance. We must call them to, again, trust in the true gospel. This happens in church discipline. It's uncomfortable, I know. But do we love our brother and sister enough to to be uncomfortable? This happens in tough conversations that we have in grace. You see something, be bold enough to say, hey, I love you enough to talk to you about this. And diligent prayer. Pray for them that the Holy Spirit would grab a hold of their mind and show them the folly of their ways. And finally, we must trust in the sovereign work of God. Even as we have a work of protection to do, we must remember that nobody loves his bride more than Jesus. Nobody loves the church more than God, and he will protect her. Just look at how he's already loved her and sending his son 
to die for us. There's no greater evidence of love than that, right? But we must follow his example and respond in love, protect her from those who would seek to exploit her for their own pleasure rather than God's glory. Be on guard. Be prepared. False teachers are among you. Do you love the church enough to speak the truth in the face of a lie? To uphold the gospel when there are those around seeking to pervert it for their own pleasure. Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time before the Lord asking him to help you know how to respond this morning. Maybe this morning you're you fear that you've embraced a false teaching. Maybe you fear that you have believed some things that God has not promised. Maybe you've never accepted the gospel at all. Maybe you've never believed in Christ alone for salvation to where you've seen your heart changed. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. That is a truth from Scripture. Just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you about what Christ has done for you. For the rest of us who are in the church, do we believe the gospel? Are we loving the truth of God's word? Or are there pieces of our heart that are rejecting the authority of God to pursue sinful desires? Would you just reject that lie today that there's something better in this world that is better than God? There's nothing. He is better. Pursue him first. And may we as a church commit to proclaiming the true gospel of Christ to point people to God who alone can satisfy. Father, would you help us know how to respond? Find us faithful, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and sing?